A week ago, at a vigil, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, speaking directly to young white supremacists, said, come back. We will always be here and hold space for you to come back. We will love you back. You are not too far gone. That sentiment sends my emotions in so many directions, it's hard to make sense of it. I am angry and scared. I am hopeful. I am motivated and depressed. Later, she says, we, as a progressive and radical people, need to learn to love bigger, to bring folks back. It's a call to a level of spiritual and emotional maturity that can be hard to reach some days. Seeing and holding the inherent worth and dignity of people who commit unspeakable acts of violence, people who uphold and impose oppression, people who capture and harm children. Our first principle as Unitarian Universalists is covenanting to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And in some situations, some days, that principle can feel like a solid and guiding light, helping us to connect to those who are different from us, bringing us closer to our neighbors, reminding us of our purpose in meetings that get a little bit heated. And then it starts to get stickier. It means that we have to believe in our own inherent worth and dignity, even when we mess up even when we feel irrecoverably broken. And it means holding the inherent worth and dignity of people who violate the personhood and dignity of others on a constant basis, which can be so very difficult, so deeply uncomfortable. For a moment earlier this week, I even considered if I could cut this part out of this sermon. <laughs> because it is so uncomfortable to hold both ideas at once. A person has created or promoted violence against scores of people, and they still, despite any terrible action they could do, have inherent worth. It's hard to make sense of evil and harder still to make sense of evil while holding on to someone's personhood. In times of hopelessness, I'm trying to remind myself to look towards history. As Unitarian Universalists, we're theological descendants of some of the most radical religious thinkers of their time. I think particularly in times of crisis, we owe it to ourselves to admit that these are questions that have plagued all of humanity, and that it takes humility to admit that we don't have all the answers and to look back at our religious texts and heritage. With questions like these, I find a lot of hope in the theology of universalism. The universalists of the 1800s believed in the idea of universal salvation the idea that no matter what horrible, horrible thing you did here on earth, you would still go to heaven because God was too big and too good and too loving to be unable to forgive human sin. 
If God was infinite, humans and their sins must be finite. Sin is punished here on earth, sort of as karma, that those who create pain and misery are they themselves miserable. But God is infinite and all-loving, and a human's sin could not be bigger than God. This most definitely is not to say the Universalists overlooked sin on earth. In fact, they were very focused on the force of evil in this world. Racism, classism, and sexism were forces of evil occupying people's minds and hearts and promoting acts of harm and therefore acts of evil into the world. Our 1800s Universalists believed and talked about evil in a very tangible and physical way. They spoke of forces of evil and demons possessing people as they carried out oppressive acts. That upholders of slavery were overcome by this shadow and through their actions were creating hell on earth for themselves as well as for everybody else. Talking about evil and oppression as a force can help us to better understand hatred, violence, and white supremacy. We can understand these ideas and belief systems as a force of pain and destruction, not something that is inherent in those bad people over there. If we can see it as a force, something solid, it might also then be true that the force can be fought back. We can notice when we or our communities start to be overtaken by it, that racism and Islamophobia and other oppression is not just something that happens to those bad people over there who are inherently racist. It's something that can creep into all of us and also something that we can all work to defeat. Understanding evil as a force and not as an innate state of being helps us to take responsibility for our own actions and internalized beliefs and reminds us of our duty to act for justice. So now let's go back to our weird Bible demon graveyard story that Adam read earlier. It is useful to note that this is one of the weirdest stories about Jesus in the Bible and does kind of top out at maybe the top 10 or 15 really bizarre stories in the Bible. And we, when we look at Bible stories, there can sometimes be some discomfort there. And we need to remind ourselves that we're not reading this because we necessarily believe it to be true or historically accurate or believe in these miracles. We read these stories to learn what they have to say about the difficulty of the human condition. A story that has been a source of inspiration for hundreds of years is worth asking, what does it have to teach us about how to get through this difficulty of being human at this time and in this place? So, Jesus is going around and teaching parables, he's healing folks and starting to perform miracles when he and his buddies 
land at Jeharasins. Jeharasins, sorry. Their boat must land pretty close to the graveyard because immediately this being that had been lurking in and around the tombs rushes up to Jesus. Let's take a moment to think about what that looks like exactly. You're hanging out with your buddy Jesus. You land your boat in a new town and immediately this being rushes up to you shouting. He has broken shackles on his wrists and ankles. He's very dirty. His skin is bruised and hurt. Given the shackles and how dirty he is, before you've had any interaction, it's pretty clear that the people who live here don't like this man. And it seems like you're not going to like him either. But you're hanging with Jesus. And to be honest, weird stuff like this is starting to happen a lot. The being yells, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Jesus recognizes that the man is being possessed and demands that the unclean spirit come out of the man. At this point, the spirit, not the man, begins to beg for mercy. Please do not torment me. And Jesus asks the name of the demon. The response, my name is Legion, for we are many. That line always kind of stops me. My name is Legion, for we are many. Up until this point, we've assumed that this guy is possessed by one random demon and that it's taken him over. It's going to be a one-to-one -one showdown with Jesus and the demon. Kind of like how Jesus' healing has been a one-to-one -one with Jesus and the illness. But instead, it is a legion of demons inside of this man. Aside from being the name of a comic book character, legion is also a unit of measurement. There's no exact set number of how much a legion is, but between sources from the Roman Empire and the Bible, a legion is five to six thousand. The legion of spirits is begging for Jesus' mercy, saying, please do not send us out of the country. Instead, let us enter this herd of pigs. Jesus allows this, and the force of the legion of the unclean spirits is so strong, the pigs end up running off of a cliff. After this kind of exorcism, the villagers see the man sitting with Jesus, clean, clothed, and coherent. And the villagers are very afraid. They beg Jesus to leave, but the man says, wait, can I come with you? And Jesus asks him instead to stay and do transformative work in his own community. The point here is twofold. One, evil is not inherent. The man without the spirits is kind and caring about the world and other people in it. He has inherent worth and dignity. And through the interaction with Jesus, we start to see that there are three beings in the conversation. Jesus, the spirit, and the man himself that the evil is not solely who he is, 
The second part is recognizing the immense strength of that evil. This man had been shunned and isolated for many years. He had been shackled, had been so distressed that he hurt himself and probably had little access to food and water given how dirty he was. But inside of him there were two or five or six thousand spirits of hatred and oppression. Spirits that are clever enough to beg for mercy, that are not leaving without a fight, that refuse to leave our community or our country. These spirits are so strong that 2,000 pigs are drowned after being possessed. And yet, and yet the spirits within the pigs are drowned. We can recognize the force of evil, and we can recognize that we have defeated evil before. We look at scripture and see one of the most bizarre and confusing stories about evil. But then the point of the story is that the spirits did drown. The man did go on to make change in his own community. A few months ago, I was at a training talking about the prison industrial complex. And the facilitator said, how dare we think it impossible to eradicate prisons when we are the movement descendants of those who fought to end slavery? How dare we think we are not powerful enough? Evil has been defeated before. We have seen the rise of evil and fought it before. We have inspiration and community and are descended from a long line of folks who have worked to defeat oppression. We are not helpless. We can hold this knowledge and this history so that we are not hopeless. Whether or not the Universalists are right about what may or may not happen after we die, they were right about one thing, that hell is here. Hell is right here and right now in all the pain and chaos, the grief and terror. But that hell is not inevitable. It can be defeated. And it's our job to defeat that hell, to find healing, and to build the commonwealth of heaven that the Universalists talked about right here on Earth.